Hi everyone, Brendan here. And Rico here. I am back from vacation. Welcome back. Thank you. Pittsburgh, still an underappreciated, full of amazing Italian food, budding tech and healthcare mecca. Yes, Brendan from Philadelphia. <laughs> that is all true about Pittsburgh. Thank right. you for taking the words out of my mouth. It's nice to be back. It nice is. to see you again. I, we, I missed you. We, it, there was a lot of work while you were gone, but we got through it. Yeah, um, I heard all the quote-unquote work you were doing. <laughs> uh, there has been work going on. We I have know. a great new fully loaded show coming up this Friday featuring guests like Willem Dafoe, Depeche Mode, and lots more. Mm. Uh, but today we wanted to lay this special podcast on you. A little background. Last week when Rico was away, uh, I was working diligently, uh, and we excerpted a new segment all about stand-up comedians. That's right. And if you heard that, you know Brendan and his guest host, Tobin Lowe, promised that we would share the longer conversation with you in podcast form. And here it is. We keep our promises. We are calling this segment Double Take. Uh, And essentially what you're going to hear is comedians talking about their craft, and then they'll talk us through the evolution of a single joke from its first and usually pretty awful telling to the present day. And our guest today, or maybe victim is a better word, is New York comic Joel Kim Booster. Yes, Joel has a half-hour special premiering October 20th on Comedy Central, and his debut album comes out November 3rd. Fun. He sat down to chat with our producer James Kim, and he brought two recordings with him. One performed in his early days as a comic at Beauty Bar in Chicago in 2012, Mm -hmm. and another from his stand-up set on Conan O'Brien's late-night show last year. So it's about five years later. Sure. Um, Heads up, the Beauty Bar set was recorded on an iPhone, so Mm -hmm. the audio quality is a little rough. The the Conan O'Brien quality is a lot better. Uh, One Mm -hmm. more disclaimer before we get going. This is an unfiltered conversation with an unfiltered comedian, so you're going to hear profanity and some very, very adult themes. This episode has a Hard R rating. So if you've got kids listening with you, stuff cotton in their ears or something, we'll wait. Okay? And we assume the rest of you are fine with four-letter words and explicit sex humor. You're a sinful, sinful people. Gosh. I took the cotton out of my ears, actually, when you said that <laughs> about the rating. I'm, I'm psyched. Yeah, you're ready for this. Yeah. Speaking of which, we weren't joking. We thought we'd start this interview the way Joel begins some of his sets mm. with one of his riskiest sex jokes this is from that early performance recorded on an iPhone back in 2012. Hey, guys. Hi. Um, before I start, just a little bit of housekeeping. Um, has anyone here ever been with a man that is ejaculated with such force and volume that you felt like you were being peed on? Woo! Uh, we got peed on, so that's not a thing that can happen. <laughs> what a, you know what's funny about this set in particular, and I was—it's kind—it's almost embarrassing. It wouldn't be embarrassing if the jokes weren't so good, but um, that particular opener is an opener—a slightly different version of that I use constantly when I'm on the road to open my shows because a it's one that uh, I've never gotten on TV <laughs> before I've it has been a part of sets that I've recorded for Comedy Central and they have always edited them out so it's always like it's I can guarantee it's a joke that no one's ever heard before and it is always such a good way to take the temperature of the room yeah, <laughs> starting a, off that they yeah. said they, I mean every established comic will tell you not to start blue and I think I get that advice and I understand that advice uh, but for me it is just such an easy way to tell like what kind of crowd I'm dealing with interesting and that's kind of looked down upon in the comedy world to just start uh, off no I mean everybody 
I, I don't know of a contemporary comic really. Uh, well, I mean, there, there are plenty of comics who don't go boo in their sets, but yeah. my st- if you're talking about your life and you're a millennial on stage, I don't know many people who aren't touching on their sex lives at least a little bit. Yeah. I probably go a little bit more into it just because it's a big part of my life, yeah. James. Uh, so, of course, I'm going to talk about it. But, yeah, I, I don't think it's it's ne- not necessarily anything other comics look down on, but it's certainly, like, the general prescribed advice is don't start there because it's a very easy way to lose an audience. And while that joke has a 90% success rate, the other 10% of the time, it can be brutal. So, uh, no. uh, the advice is is very real, but it's just one that I think, you know, I'm, I've been doing this for a while now, and I'm fairly successful at it, I feel like I can take the advice that I want and throw out the rest yeah. at this point. One thing I love about this joke, too, it kind of introduces who you are. You said that you're a sexual person, and you start off right off the bat of kind of an experience that people normally don't share in public <laughs> spaces, and it kind of sets it up that, you know, you like to have sex, but it's also that you're a gay man as well. You do that in one joke. That's why I call it housekeeping. Every time I, that's the one thing, one of the big carryovers from that uh, joke is I always start it by saying I need to do a little bit of housekeeping because that's how I, exactly what you just described about the joke is exactly in my brain. And it is a very like, well, we've got some business to get out of the way before you can listen to any of my jokes about, you know, current events or (laughs) politics. I want you to know the full context of what you're dealing with in front of you right now. (laughs) The person that you're talking to is uh, gross and he's gay and he's a little naive and that joke sort of encapsulates my entire identity. Weirdly, a joke about being peed on. (laughs) And I love that you mentioned that this is something that you cannot say when you're doing stand-up on television and four years later... Uh, you were booked on Conan to be a stand-up comedian yeah. and to do a set in 2016. Yeah. And you started your set differently. So I kind of want to play a clip from that stand-up set where you, uh, you know, you're on late night on Conan. My name, it's very strange. It does not match my face. Joel Kim Booster. Why? You know? Joel up top there, that seems pretty Jewish. Doesn't make any sense at all. Kim in the middle, that seems closer. Uh, And then Booster right there at the end, well, that's just a word. (laughs) It's not a name at all. What's happening there? And the reason I have this very goofy name is, yes, I was adopted by a nice white Midwestern couple in the mid-'80s, like many Korean babies were. Um, Korea in the mid-'80s, if you were around, you probably remember, it was the only country that would fly a baby to the U.S., and you didn't have to go and pick it up. So it was... uh, it's very much the Grubhub of babies back then. Uh, yeah, that I think is a much more traditional opener uh, to a stand-up okay. set than the uh, the compy dichotomy that uh, you played a minute ago. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about how you came up with that joke um, and and how you decided. Oh, this is a great opener for me. Yeah, I well, I remember I was peeing when I thought of it. Okay. Um, you know, most of my sets in New York are between ten and fifteen minutes long on average. Uh, sometimes I don't ever touch on being adopted or any of that stuff. And so it is. it remains a huge mystery for a lot of people. And I think after those shows, the biggest question I get is, what, what is up with Booster? Where did that come from? Interesting. My, it's a, a lifelong thing, actually. I think my entire life people have been asking me why my last name is Booster. And um, 
right before I, I sat down and wrote the joke, somebody asked me, like, what is booster? And I was like, that's just a word. <laughs> that's, that's, um, and then I think I just said that out loud on stage one night and it worked. Uh, my writing process is very loosey-goosey, I think, compared to a lot of comics who have a notebook that they write sort of word for word verbatim what they're going to say every night on stage. I'm very improvisational in terms of like what I'm saying on stage and especially now like when I have an opportunity to do a smaller show in like the back of a bar half the shit I'm going to say is just a word that I have written down on my phone that I want to talk about and then go from really? there and then sort of pick out figure out from a very loose conversation with the audience what is funny and that is sort of how that joke was created although that I, I had a very specific intent I think because it so easily transitions into that was a, a period in my career when I was really working on a lot of that adoption material and it was such an easy transition into it yeah. um, so there's a lot of strategy with that too and it, it crams so much into to your identity as well just right off the bat um, and makes it well funny. and that's I yeah. think that's the biggest difference between these two sets is that um, you know Chicago was such a great place for me to start stand up and I learned a lot about what that was but I, I really for the most part I didn't get good at it until I moved to New York in a lot of ways because the New York open mic circuit it's I mean it's, it's exhausting because I waited you know in my early days in, in open mics like upwards of two to three hours to do two minutes on stage you know and some nights you get lucky and you can get up at three different open mics you know across new york and brooklyn in a night but the most time you'll probably get at any of those mics is two minutes and so you learn really really quickly in new york i think the economy of words um so that was specifically when i was doing those open mics that was when i had to really like figure out what the joke is and get to the next joke so that i can actually like just get it out of my body um the biggest difference i think between these two sets when i was listening to them earlier it's just the economy of words and the, the quicker rhythm i think i was f- this oh you're gonna hear it i mean it's oh, yeah. so meandering it drives me nuts <laughs> to hear and before we get into another one of those jokes from one of your let's say your third gig ever i was always curious that in four years you went from playing your third stand-up gig <laughs> to doing conan yeah uh it's definitely it's quick i think a lot of people, you know, would do this for a decade before they end up on TV, and I'm very fortunate in a lot of ways. And I think there's two reasons for that. One of them is a little bit more uncomfortable to talk about, but the first one is that I think right now we are in the middle of the comedy golden age, as some people probably refer to it. It's a big bubble that will probably burst very soon and leave all of us jobless. Uh, uh, but. No. Uh, comedy is com- it's a good time to be a stand-up comic right now there's a lot of work and there's a lot of attention on stand-up comics right now and I think that is one reason and I think the other reason is there's two different ways to look at this and I've heard it from all sides uh, a very crude way of putting it that I've heard is that uh, I got in because of affirmative action I'm a mm. double minority and this is a, a field that is overpopulated with straight white men right now and and those sorts of perspectives and they're all great and I'm friends with scores and scores of them James I love them all dearly <laughs> they're like my children but yeah. um the, I think the the thing that for me is it is not that I was elevated because of my minority status I think I just happened to have a point of view that people haven't heard and thank god I'm good at what I do and so it's like well why not have this 
perspective that we haven't heard before. Let's put it on television. But JB, the guy who books Conan, is also not an idiot. And I wouldn't describe him as someone who is, uh, whose diversity is at the forefront of his mind. I think he, he likes the comics that he likes and they happen to sort of cover a diverse spectrum of points of view. Yeah. That's the other side of it. Why does, uh, why did that make you kind of uncomfortable to mention that? Um, I think it's frustrating because, you know, no matter what I do, if I succeed, it's because I'm a minority. It's because, oh, you know, they're, they'll put any gay guy up on stage. Mm. I've had, I remember after I booked truly just like a, I think a club, it wasn't even something I had another comic was like, if I was a faggot, I'd, you know, get up on stage every night too. And that, wow. and it's, and that is like the real attitude of a lot of people who I work with that, you know, just being a minority makes this business easier. But the, the flip side of that coin is that every time I fail now too, it, you you point to that and it's like, oh, he was put up too early. He was, you know, it's right. because gay guys aren't funny or they think it's easier to be funny. You know, it's everything that I do is pathologized in some way. So it's it's frustrating to talk about. It's not something that I'm like super interested in talking about, mm-hmm. of, you know, about my career. But it's just there's just so many of us that are doing specifically gay comics, I think, are the rarest and most endangered species within the comedy community <laughs> right now. But there are just so many of us doing good work. You know, like, yeah. I, of course, I've seen the shows where somebody who probably was not ready to be doing the amount of time that they were doing and probably because of their specific point of view were put up on the show. But like that, they're such the minority right now. There are for every one of those comics, there is 20 comics that have worked their asses off of and have, you know, had to fight with the fact that I have been told I've been I've replaced other bigger gay comics on shows before. And it's so rare for me to be on a show with another gay comic. It's like but people when they scream about like the affirmative action nature of my success, they don't see that kind of shit. They don't see the all the times where there are, you know, seven slots for white dudes and then one slot for whatever kind of minority that they want to throw in at the end. I mean, yeah. it's starting to change. I will say, I think, like, the success of guys like John Early, it's, it's no longer... I think, like, five years ago, it would have felt really threatening to all of us. But now it really does feel like, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, that sort of shit. Yeah. Um, like, I'm so happy when I see other gay comics who are succeeding because it just means that there will be more work for all of us. Um, I don't know. That was so much no, talking. That but it I was just so did. good. I, no, 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 no. I loved it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And just one more question on this, but um, on top of being gay, there's not a lot of Asian comics either. I remember no. speaking to a lot of Asian comics and their role model for the longest time was Margaret Cho. And that was the only yeah. one for decades. And so it's like Asian people don't really have a lot of people they can look up to or be inspired by in the comedy world. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess there aren't a ton that have broken in the same way that Margaret has, but I guess from an inside like from my perspective inside the community like seeing stand up, I'm just I'm thinking about like the Ronnie Changs and like Hassan Minaj, like there are so many Ali Wong, you know, there are so many of them that are breaking now that I work with so much. I just did a wonderful show that's starting in New York that is based in LA called Asian AF, which I believe I don't want to you know, make any assumptions, but I believe it stands for Asian as fuck. Um, and it's a show based at UCB, but it's like a variety show. And I just did it on in New York on Sunday, and there were probably a little over a dozen, probably actually more than that, maybe uh, like uh, 25 people, all Asian comics doing improv and sketch and stand up. And it was like the most impressive night to me because it's like, oh God, again, it's that thing of like, none of us are ever 
on the same show. (laughs) We are only ever competing for one spot on some show. And so to see us all in that same room on the same stage, like, and everyone killed. It was so good. And it's like, we're all so good at this. Like, why aren't all of us working? Every single person in that room should have been on Conan at some point. Yeah. Too. yeah. <laughs> Even the non-stand-ups. Everyone in the audience, <laughs> all of the improvisers, put them all on Conan. That's not fair. Let's go back to um, that first set. And so now we're going we're gonna to play two jokes um, that are essentially the same joke back-to-back. This one being from that set that it's your third set ever in Chicago at Beauty Bar. Um, and I'll just label, you know what, I'm not going to say anything. So we'll play the clip, and it's a two-minute long clip, so sit with us. Let's play the clip and just hear it. It was 1994. It was Christmas. And like every other six-year-old boy, I only wanted one thing for Christmas. The crimp and curl pony. And I got it, ladies and gentlemen. I got my crimp and curl pony, and I was... So, so excited for the Crimp and Curl Pony, and I opened it up, and, you know, that was my mom, who was deeply, deeply in denial, was like, oh, yay, and my dad was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I can, I can remember being six years old and sitting at the kitchen table, crimping and curling with and my dad turning to my mom and being like, what are you doing? Like, what this is a girl's toy and my mom turning to my dad and being like well you know ken my my brother bob he got baby dolls when he was growing up and and now he's a pediatrician <laughs> and my dad was like what do you think he's gonna be a horse hairstylist like which is a fair question <laughs> because is that much better than just so, uh, so yeah, <laughs> and, and I remember being six years old and sitting at that kitchen table, listening to that conversation, and for the first time, like, realizing what I was, and realizing and wishing for the first time that I could be a, hair, a horse hairstylist. <laughs> I never wished I wasn't gay. That was the lead-up to that joke. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and so Janet, uh, Janet eventually came to accept it oh, later when she read my journal, uh, much, much later, after the Crimp and Curl Pony, but I still have it. What are you talking about? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? There's so much just, I mean, oh God, that was really hard. I will say the meat and potatoes of that joke has stayed the same. Yeah. Well, maybe, oh wait, are we going to listen to the we, other one? Yeah, now? we will, in a bit, but... Okay. With that set, yeah, I can tell within that joke, there was stumbling in there. Um, yeah, and, there's a good joke in there, you yeah. can tell, but it's yeah. just not quite there yet. Yeah, and then, you know, of course, that last bit where it's the punchline, the final punchline, and then you stumble on it. Yeah, which that was unfortunate. And, yeah, and then it's going back and then kind of explaining the joke. How are you feeling in that moment? Um, I don't know. I think I probably felt great, honestly. (laughs) I honestly was so delusional back then. I don't remember feeling poorly about this. I mean, I uploaded it to YouTube afterwards, which thankfully, like a year later, I had the good sense to put it on Unlisted and even more thankfully, just saved it in general so we could do this horrific exercise right now on this podcast. But no, I don't remember feeling especially 
bad about it. Here's the thing about my first three stand-up sets or so is that I didn't realize at first that stand-up comics were able to repeat material. So the first three times I did stand-up, it was all new material each time wow. uh, because I, I, I thought that a stand-up burned their material every after every <laughs> single show. And I always say the first time I ever did stand-up was sort of a fluke. I was asked at the last minute to do it at this like fundraiser bullshit theater thing. And um, I did it and I killed And I don't think if those early sets, if I hadn't walked away feeling like, oh, I'm good at this, I probably never, I never would have continued on. People always tell me these stories of like, yeah, I bombed for the first two years straight of doing stand-up and then I finally got good. And I'm like, how do you have that kind of stamina to do that? <laughs> I, you know, because then I certainly bombed uh, for, again, my year after that. But those first three sets, I remember walking away being like, wow. This is it. This is it for me. This is what I was meant to do, to perform in a bar for seven people. Uh, and I'm curious because it is, um, it's like a two-minute joke. And I'm wondering what that writing process, the first time you sat down to write that joke, how did you come about with it? Um, I didn't. I mean, I thought about the story. I thought about the story of my mom saying that to my dad, which is a, a verbatim quote that my mom did. It's not something that I made up for the joke. And I think this is like this is a, a perilous point that some stand-ups have at the beginning of their careers, where you are somewhere in between a storyteller and a stand-up comic, and there's and sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. I mean, it's not hard to tell the difference because there will be laughter for one and not for the other <laughs> in many cases. But uh, I think the thing is, is that I just told the story, and the story is at its core very funny. There is like a very funny sort of truth, like. Uh, to that story of that my mom is insane, like just the depths of my mom's sort of insanity to twist her brain and, and convince herself that I wasn't gay as a child. Um, but there needs to be sort of things you write around that. And that's what I learned, I think, later on. I did that joke in Chicago for this set. I think I did it maybe three other times in Chicago before I left for New York. And then I didn't do it in New York until... Probably like the year leading up to that Conan set, I would say, is when I, I started to redo it. And I started, I rewrote so much of it just to fill those gaps. Because up until I think the uh, horse hair stylist line and the um, my brother Bob used to play with baby dolls and now he's a pediatrician line. Those are the only two laugh lines in the set that we just heard, I think. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some of it, some of it comes from, and this is dangerous for me, and I, I'm like, a funny person. I, I'm a charismatic person, and and it is hard to sometimes like f differentiate between like joke writing and just being sort of having a funny, you know, facial expression while you're saying something that's not funny. Yeah. Um, and you know, I still probably do that uh, to this day. I'm sure many of my haters are listening right now, <laughs> saying, "Joel, that's your entire act." But um, I will say, like this, the pony joke in its current form. Is, is my favorite joke, and it is the first joke I remember ever writing um, as a comic that other stand-ups that I respected um, would come up to me after a show and be like, that is a great joke. Wow. That is like a joke that, you know, is... is I, and, and, and so I'm, I'm super proud of it. And, and that's it's sort of um, crazy that I found this terrible clip of it because <laughs> it makes me less proud of it. <laughs> So now let's hear the evolution. Four years later, you're on Conan and you tell the same joke about your mom who is in denial about you coming out mm -hmm. and you being gay. And this is kind of the moment where she finally has to realize that you are gay. Um, so now let's play what you did four years later on Conan. 
So I was a pretty gay kid growing up, um, which is actually like a ridiculous premise for a joke. Many gay comedians have this premise, but what does that actually mean? Because have you guys ever met a six-year-old? They're all hella gay, you know? Like, I don't know what criteria we're using to project our expectations of sexuality onto a child, but there's not a six-year-old in this country crushing puss right now, all right? Like, it's just, it doesn't happen, so. But for the sake of uh, my joke, I was pretty gay, um, and it was never more apparent than Christmas 1996. I wanted what every little boy in the nation wanted for Christmas. You guys know what it is. The Crimp and Curl Pony by the Cabbage Patch Company. My mom was super cool. She got it for me. I opened it up on Christmas morning. I just started crimping and curling right away. Um, My dad, less enthused, he looked at my mom and he was like, Janet, what the hell, like, why would you get him this girl's toy? This is a toy for girls. And my mom looked at my dad and was like, well, Ken, my brother Bob, he used to get baby dolls for Christmas, and now he's a pediatrician, so. (laughs) Case closed. And my dad, like, rightfully looked at my mom and was like, what the hell do you think he's gonna be, a fucking horse hair stylist? Like, what's the end game here, Janet? And, you know, I, I remember my dad saying that, and I remember thinking, is that a profession? Is that something that I can do? Like, does it require a certificate? Like, give me the full story, Dad! There's so much more confidence. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know what's funny? I was thinking about this joke and and listening to the, the differences here. And so my background is in theater. And I was an I was an actor for a long time and a writer and then uh, and then I started doing this and when I did it in Chicago I was so much closer to that world and it's so ironic because the thing that really makes this joke I think click into place for me or made it click into place for me was when I embraced the sort of inherent theatricality of this joke which is there are characters and there are you know it's oh, yeah. like. It, the chance to act, I think, like adding the cry at the end yeah. was such a pivotal moment <laughs> in this joke because uh, you know YouTube comments are notoriously uh, savage, and mine are as well. Many, many terrible comments on my YouTube page that I can't help but read. Uh, but I will say the one thing that saves me from a lot of people's ire is they say, you know, most of this set sucked, but oh. I, that. That moment really got me. He really tricked me into thinking that he was about to cry on television. So uh, I will say it saved me. But wow, um, yeah, I think adding like sort of embracing that part of myself and the part that said at the beginning of my stand-up career of being like, no, you, you know, leave the theater behind. You're a stand-up comic now. It was <laughs> actually a wrong impulse on my part because I think some of my best jokes sort of come from a place of of theatricality and and just dumbness. Yeah. And one thing, too, is that with the old joke, what we didn't hear, um, the one where it was your third gig, there's a lot of references to your mom um, not getting the hint that you're gay, about your suspenders yeah. and you being in theater when you're um, oh in elementary God, yeah, school. I forgot about all that fluff, yeah. Yeah, and, and then it leads into this pony joke. But the way you lead into this one, um, you start off by saying something very... Um, uh, kind of edgy and t- you know talking about yeah, six year olds. Well, I think setting <laughs> yes, crushing push. Uh, yeah. I can't believe they didn't believe push. Yeah. I was always so shocked that I was allowed to say. Yeah. Um, I I I, th- I think like for me that comes out of that came out of just doing stand up and understanding the 
context that is important to set up and the context that it's not. I mean, that joke is not at the end of the day really about uh, my mom, my mom's denial in a huge way. I mean, it's it's, mm-hmm. uh, and this is also you know, I don't know. It just felt like I after watching so much, you know, hours and days and days worth of stand-up comedy over many years in, in, you know, clubs and mics and stuff like that and watching other gay comics and realizing that this was a common thread and then sort of thinking about the reality of, like, every, almost every gay comic has some story in their set where they're like, I was such a gay kid and no one knew or everyone knew or something like that and just thinking, I mean, here's the thing, I I went to a fucking uh, liberal arts school and I majored in English and gender studies and I love to think maybe and (laughs) this joke maybe just trying to fit in like this weird like sociological context of like what does that even mean to be like I was a gay kid I mean we all know what it means but at the end but it just it's so uh, it was so funny to me that we all had these stories and then commenting on that seemed like more fun than trying to like bring like throw my mom under the bus for the 18th time in my yeah And I love, too, when you're talking about getting in character, um, especially with your dad, and you go, I think you say, um, what are you talking about, Janet, or something like it. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the other big difference, too, is that adding the specificity of their names, I don't know, I cannot tell you how many times people laugh at just the name Janet. Yeah. Um, which is very funny. It is my mom's name. Um, and... I don't remember why or how I started adding in the specificity of their names, but create making them care more like characters because I think in the first one I just sort of casually toss off like my mom said this and then my dad said that and making if you watch the clip too I do like a very like speech team sort of like angling out and giving them each like different you know perspectives and, and yeah. physicality and stuff like that and just going to those places I don't know it's like sometimes I think it's just for me but I listening to those jokes now it does make it better I think that weird specificity of their names and and who they are and making them more of a thing. Yeah. And most importantly, um, you didn't stumble on the, the punchline. <laughs> no, absolutely. That's a yeah. big part of stand-up that they don't talk <laughs> enough about is not stumbling yeah. over your words. <laughs> but that last part of adding that cry, where did you get that idea? Um, I don't really know. <laughs> um, I got to say, I'm prob- I was probably like really inspired by people like John Early and like Jacqueline Novak here in New York and mm. Kate Berlant, who, uh, who I, here's the thing, is I, a lot of publications and places and people have described me as a quote-unquote alt-comic, which is silly because I think what I do is fairly um, traditional in terms of what stand-up is. I think the only reason people call me an alt-comic is because, uh, again, of my uh, specific demographic signifiers. <laughs> yeah. But um, like when I watch real alt-comics like John or Jacqueline or Kate Berlant, the it's stealing, basically, like just being inspired and and saying like, oh, like what they are doing on stage, and in bringing this theatricality that I was talking about earlier, and sort of um, st- stepping out of stand up or commenting on stand up, or is so much more interesting than just like doing the joke. I thought, and I, I probably was in some way inspired by um, that, you know, sort of 
weirdness on stage and and not doing because it's not a joke it's not a joke you can conceptualize or in, in like explain yeah why is it funny that i'm talking about a real deep thing and then i'm about to break into tears i don't know why it's funny the shock i guess it's like setting up the shock of of what the actual punchline is to that joke i don't know it's <laughs> I, I like i like having the space though i can't really explain otherwise and also you know Every set is an audition, James. Every set. <laughs> you never know what industry might be in the audience. You got to show them you got range. You know, I want to do my indie dramas. I want to do my big budget comedies. I want to have it all. <laughs> nice. Joel Kim Booster, thank you so much for talking with me about this. Thank you so much for having me. I hope uh, half of what I said made sense. Comedian Joel Kim Booster, interviewed by James Kim. Joel's stand-up special premieres October 20th on Comedy Central, and his debut album comes out November 3rd. It is called Model Minority. And while we're here, we want to wish producer James a fond farewell. Uh, He just ended his stint with DPD, and now he's off to make podcasts in the wilds of Pasadena, (laughs) California. Be careful out there, James. Yeah, it's a crazy madhouse. Stay frosty. Uh, Meanwhile, we're going to miss your big ideas, James, and your nano-cutting skills, your startlingly full head of hair, your sarcasm. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely showed us you had range. He also could wear a leather jacket like nobody's business. Surprising. Um, I don't know if I'll need that in Pasadena, but what the heck. Yeah. Good luck to you, James. The rest of Team DPD is senior producer Jackson Musker, associate producer Krista Ripple, associate digital producer Christina Lopez, and intern Emerald Douglas. Jake Gorski engineered this podcast. And one final thing, podcastians, Brendan and I have a book coming out Mm -hmm. just in time for holiday gift bestowing. It's called Brunch is Hell. And it is both an expose of the leisure time killing scourge that is brunch, and it's a how to guide for fighting back by throwing dinner parties. Maybe James should buy one. I mean, Pasadena's brunch country. For you sure. Be careful out there. Oh my um, God. But no, the, the book, folks, it's funny and silly, and it also has a heartfelt plea for humans to get together and actually talk to each other. You can pre order it now from Amazon. Please go do that. Just type in brunch as hell and bon appetit. Don't type in bon appetit. <laughs> 